Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. I just got back this week from a couple of great events out in Missouri, or Missouri, I guess it depends on where you're from, how you pronounce the uh, show me state, but I was out at Missouri Western State University on Wednesday night, and then the following night, about, I don't know, 40 minutes or so north of that, I was at Northwest Missouri State University, and uh, great audiences, both places. You can see the entire presentations on our Facebook page. I think they're also on our website. Uh, and uh, we did, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, had a lot of questions. The first night we had, uh, we had a lot of people sitting on the floor. It was great to see so many people come out. Uh, so we had, I don't know, maybe 230 something seated and then about 115 or so sitting on the floor. So they were eager to see that. And then the next night we had a much bigger venue. We, uh, we had about 700 people there. It, it looked like, and, uh, we had more than, I think, an hour of questions. And you can see all that. Uh, if, as I say, if you go to our website, crossexamine.org, it should be up there. If it's not there, I know it's on the Facebook page both nights because we stream those events and we then leave them up on Facebook so you can watch them later. By the way, if you want to get those events when we go out on a college campus, because uh, we stream every college event we can, all you need to do is go to crossexamine.org uh, on Facebook, the crossexamine.org page and the DR Frank Turek page, Dr. Frank Turek. Like those pages, and uh, hopefully when we're streaming, it'll come up on your page or at least check our page periodically to see when we're going to be on a college campus. And then you can see those streams because you may have seen the presentation before if, you're, if you've been a follower of our ministry for a while, but the questions are always interesting. Uh, even if you've seen the presentation before. So you want to tune in for that. I've got some questions from you because you've been emailing me questions uh, at the email address. Hello at crossexamine.org. I want to handle a few of those today. And maybe I'll talk a little bit about some of the questions we got at uh, on the road if we have time. Uh, one of the questions that I've gotten uh, recently has to do with denominations. In fact, Sam writes, if you can, please take time for a podcast on denominations. Why are there so many uh, denominations? Uh, why can't Christians agree on their own religion? And if we can't agree on our own religion, why should atheists or why should uh, non-believers agree that Christianity is true? Okay, uh, let's let's take a little bit of time on that question. Why are there so many denominations? Um, and you know, if Christianity is true, why, why isn't there just one? Well, before we delve into that, let's try and uncover the assumption behind the question. Because it seems that the assumption behind the question or underneath this question, by the way, this is what you want to do whenever you get a question. You want to try and see if there's an assumption, a hidden assumption underneath the question. It seems to me that underneath this question is the assumption, if God exists, if Christianity were true, then God would somehow make human beings agree on everything. Is that a valid assumption? I don't think so. I mean, I actually think it's impossible for God to make free creatures agree on everything. And if you say, well, man aren't 
men aren't free, then we have a problem in the Bible. Why? Well, the God, according to the Bible, God wants everybody to be saved. Well, if he wants everybody to be saved and everybody isn't saved, then there's a problem. <laughs> because if God can make everybody saved and not everybody is saved, then there's a contradiction there. But perhaps the reason not everybody has accepted the free gift of salvation is because they don't want to. They have the free choice to reject God. So I think it would be impossible for God to force free creatures to do anything. That would be a contradiction. If people have free will, and I think they do, then God can't force them to do anything. Now, we talked about predestination and free will in a previous podcast a few weeks ago. Go back and listen to that if you want. I hope to have John Lennox on at some point. He has a new book on that topic. Uh, but it seems to me that if uh, if God allows us to have free will, then he's not he, 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 he's not going to prevent people from having different views on what the scriptures teach. You say, well, maybe he could make his re- revelation clearer then. Well, maybe that's true. Maybe he could have. That's I guess that's possible. Maybe he has some reasons for leaving some areas a little bit murky. Or maybe it's not a issue of clarity at all. Maybe it's an issue of hard hearts. I mean, think about this. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And some in the Jewish authority wanted to kill not only Jesus, they wanted to kill Lazarus too. I mean, they see Jesus do a miracle and they don't fall down and worship him and say, you're the Messiah, you're God. They go, no, you must die. Better one man die, one innocent man die, than all of Israel go down, said, said Caiaphas. I mean, we have a notorious reputation for suppressing the truth to get what we want. The Apostle Paul talks about this at length in Romans chapter 1. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness to go our own way. And this is why, by the way, I always ask unbelievers, as I've said a hundred times on this show, I've said a hundred times in this show, stop exaggerating. No, I've said a hundred times on this show, at least that the question to ask non-believers is if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Because 99 times out of 10, as my friend Richard Howe says, it really is not an intellectual problem in most cases, not in all cases, but in most cases, it's not an intellectual problem why somebody's not a Christian. It's usually a moral, volitional, or emotional problem. They might not want Christianity to be true. They might think Christianity is going to get in the way of what they want to do. They think Christianity is going to stop them from having fun. And when it's a choice between God and fun, they're going to always take fun. They're not on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. Of course, they may not realize that the kind of fun they want to engage in is ultimately going to lead to their demise. And the only way to get true contentment and happiness, not only in this life, but in the eternal life, is to put your identity in Christ. But everybody wants to figure that out for themselves, and God gives us the free will to do so. Now, I don't really think it's a matter of clarity. I think there's a number of reasons why people um, break up into different denominations. And some of them have to do with the fact that we're fallen, prideful creatures. Uh, sometimes there's a dispute about secondary issues. Sometimes there is some issues that maybe you could make arguments on both sides for on the secondary issues, not the primary issues. 
Uh, some people are wired differently for worship, and so different denominations have different worship styles. Some people come from different cultures, so maybe a certain kind of uh, worship style or a certain kind of liturgy or a certain kind of church would minister to people better than another kind in another area of the world. I mean, there's many reasons, and we're going to get into some of these in more detail, but I've noticed that a lot of times people would rather crawl naked over broken glass than to avoid something they want they want to stay away from they don't want to admit something so they they come up with all sorts of different unreasonable objections for example at the two events that i had um at in missouri this past week uh, you can go through the q and I'm not going to single anybody out. But, I mean, there were people there who were making objections, uh, like, for example, with regard to the creation of the universe, that I think were so obscure and so unreasonable that it certainly strikes me as somebody really grasping at straws to try and avoid the obvious, to try and avoid what's most reasonable. And as I brought up in the in the uh, presentation, and of course I talk about in the books, even atheists agree that space, time, and matter had a beginning. And the most reasonable conclusion, therefore, in my view, would be that some spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent creator created the universe. I mean, that seems more reasonable than anybody than anything else. Yet people will try and avoid that at all costs. Why? It's not that the evidence isn't clear. It's that hearts are hard. They have other agendas, and that may be why we have different denominations, at least in some respects. I'll come back and talk about that more. I'm Frank Turek. Don't go away. Back in two. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examined Podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the Donate button, or simply use the Donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. Welcome back to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamine.org. That's Cross-Examine with a D on the end of it. And uh, by the way, before we talk more about why are there different denominations, I got to tell you that for some reason, fall must be the time for conferences because I'm speaking at several conferences over the next uh, month or so, month and a half or so, that I'd like you to know about. They're in all over the, the country, so... Maybe one of these will apply to you, and I'll start from the uh, closest one that, uh, in terms of the calendar coming up, and that's the uh, the Deeper Roots Conference in Kalamazoo, Michigan. That's where Western Michigan University is, not too far from Grand Rapids, western side of the state. Uh, I will be there, as well as Timothy McGrew, who's a brilliant guy. He's so brilliant, he actually teaches William Lane Craig probability theory. Of course, my friend Richard Howe will be there of, of Southern Evangelical Seminary. Uh, Tom Gilson from uh, The Stream, he'll be there. Lydia McGrew, Timothy's uh, wife, who has written a fabulous book called Undesigned Coincidences. Well, actually, it's hidden in plain view. It's about undesigned coincidences. Uh, there'll be several other folks there, uh, and that is coming up. When is that coming up? That's coming up uh, September. The date should be right here on the website, guys. Why is it, Why are the dates not here? I can't believe this. They don't even have the dates. Well, I know when about. It's like the 22nd or 23rd uh, of 
September are the dates. Yeah, there it is. September, actually September 21st to 22nd. And the night prior to that, which is uh, September 20th, I'll be with uh, Richard Howe at Grand Valley State University. We're going to be talking about miracles there. Not the typical presentation, not the typical I don't have enough faith presentation, uh, but we're going to talk about miracles, and that'll be live streamed on the 20th of September. So I hope to see you guys there in Kalamazoo, Michigan from the 20th to the 22nd. Then, right after that, we have the biggest apologetics conference maybe in the world now. It's, I think, our 25th year. Let's see, 25, maybe 26 or 27 now that I think about it. It's at uh, my alma mater, Southern Evangelical Seminary. Uh, That is here in Charlotte, North Carolina. It'll be at Calvary Church. Ravi Zacharias, the headliner. Ravi writes, God reads. He'll be here, along with Josh McDowell, uh, Hugh Ross, myself, Jay Warner Wallace, Norman Geisler, um, Chip Ingram of Living on the Edge. You know, the preacher Chip Ingram, he'll be here. He's written a book on apologetics. Natasha Crane, several others. If you if there's one conference you go to, this would be it. It's in Charlotte here. Two days, two full days, 65 speakers, 87 sessions. And that is coming up in uh, October here. I think it's October 13th, 14th. It, you know, it's actually October 12th and 13th uh, right here in Charlotte, North Carolina. SES.edu for more. SES.edu for more. Um, also, gee, I've skipped one. The Rethink Apologetics Conference. That's out in California, Costa Mesa, Orange County, put on by Standard Reason. That's actually September 28th and 29. Myself, Jay Warner Wallace, Greg Kokel, Alan Schleeman, Tim Barnett, Amy Hall, Jason Jimenez. Many others are going to be at that conference as well. That's a very unique conference for youth it's in it, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, I believe it is, uh, not far from the John Wayne Airport there in Southern California. That's, again, September 28th and 29th. And last but not least, out in Colorado Springs, the Spyglass Conference. This is October 25th to 27th, uh, and it's out at the Antlers in Colorado Springs. Ron Matson will be there. He used to work with uh, Chuck Missler, Josh McDowell. Bill Federer, you guys know who Bill Federer is? Fabulous historian, has a TV program on uh, history and faith in history. He's the guy that put together those quote books from the Founding Fathers. Amazing guy. Of course, I'll be there. Jason Elam, you know who Jason Elam is? He's the former kicker for the Broncos, and he's involved in Bible translation now. He's also into apologetics. My friend Bob Cornuke, the real Indiana Jones, he will be there as well. All of that is uh, up on the website. I think you can just uh, Google Spyglass Conference. And that, again, is in Colorado Springs, October 25th to 27th. So we've got deeper roots in Kalamazoo, Michigan coming up. Then after that, we've got the Rethink Conference out in California. Then we've got the National Conference on Christian Apologetics here in Charlotte, October 12th or so. And then out in Colorado Springs, October 25th to 27th. We have the Spyglass Conference. Okay, is that enough conferencing? Check all that stuff out, friends. If you're in any of those areas, I'd love to see you there. And there's many other speakers other than me. So check those out and uh, come on out and uh, indulge in apologetics and theology and philosophy because uh, those are great places to get all that and to meet the people who wrote the books. Okay. All right, let's go back to our topic today. We are talking about why are there so many denominations? And I was pointing out that one of the reasons is, is people, they have their own agendas and uh, they have their own traditions 
And it doesn't matter quite frequently what the truth is. And I think we're all susceptible to this. We have to be careful. How much of what we believe is based on tradition and based on our own preferences rather than really what Christianity teaches, what the Bible teaches? In fact, Jesus is famous for saying, you nullify the word of God on account of your tradition. Do we do that? So part of it has to do with just the hardness of hearts. And there's hardness of hearts among Christians. There's hardness of hearts among unbelievers. That's what I was saying earlier. There would people, there were people out there who would who who would be willing to crawl naked over broken glass to avoid Christianity, to avoid some just reasonable conclusions. I had some conversations uh, out in Missouri with a skeptic talking about objective morality. He tried to deny objective morality. I said, You don't believe that. You already know that objective moral precepts exist, that objective moral obligations exist. I don't even need to give you any evidence. I can't even prove it to you. You already know it. You're suppressing it in order to avoid the obvious, that if there are objective moral obligations, if there is an objective moral law, there must be an objective moral lawgiver. But no, he'd rather avoid that for some reason. It was Louise Anthony, who was an atheist in her debate with William Lane Craig, who admitted something in her debate that actually hurt her position. And here's what she said. She said, any argument for moral skepticism, in other words, any argument that says morals are not objective, everything's just subjective, it's just your opinion against somebody else's opinion. She said, any argument for moral skepticism will be based on premises which are, which are less obvious than the existence of objective moral values themselves, unquote. Do you see her point? In other words, any argument you could give for atheism would be built on weaker premises than the obvious conclusion you've already come to, that there are objective moral values and objective moral obligations. You just know that torturing babies for fun is wrong. It's just written on your heart. You know, you know it's not just a matter of opinion. You know that the Holocaust was wrong. It's not just a matter of opinion. Look, even if the Nazis had won World War II and convinced everybody in the world that torturing Jews and then killing them was good, it would still be objectively wrong, even if nobody knew it. But you know it. Everybody knows it. You have to be talked out of that kind of thing. You have to be talked out of the fact that murder's wrong. In fact, Hitler couldn't couldn't tell his SS to kill innocent Jews. What he told his SS was to kill Jews because they were subhuman. In other words, he got them to believe in a false notion of who the Jews were. He had to dehumanize them to get his SS to think it was good to kill them. So everybody already knows it's wrong to murder. Because it's written on our hearts, it's put there by God, and it's based on God's nature that any deviation from God's nature is what we call evil. And so there are people out there who will stand in front of you and say, no, murder isn't really wrong. And they're lying to themselves and they're lying to you when they say that. Because they would rather have what they perceive to be freedom from an authority like God than admit he exists. This is why the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian, is an important question to ask. Because it unveils and uncovers 
excuses that people are harboring or the real intent of their hearts, the real obstacles to them becoming Christians. And as I say, sometimes Christians do the same thing. And that might be one reason why we have so many denominations. In fact, I came across an article on a website uh, put out by Starting Point, which is a ministry of North Point Church, Andy Stanley's church down in Georgia. And it's quite a good article on um, denominations. I'm going to read sections of it here because it's quite good. And uh, it's basically answering the question, why are there so many different denominations? And here's what it says. During Jesus's ministry, he prayed that his future followers would exhibit a special kind of unity that would be a testimony to the world. So what happened? Rather than unity, harmony, and cooperation, Christians are often known for their squabbles and divisions. Even when they appear to get along, they divide up into hundreds of different groups, churches, and denominations. For those who are not Christians, it seems confusing. Why can't they agree on anything? Why are there sometimes four churches on the same street? Even for believers, the question often arises. Why are there so many Christian denominations? Before we explore this issue, let's survey the landscape. Within Christianity, there are three main branches. Eastern Orthodoxy, which is chiefly practiced in Russia and Eastern European countries. Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. In the United States, we're most familiar with Roman Catholic churches and Protestant denominations. While virtually all Roman Catholic churches have the same beliefs, form, and structure, Protestant denominations can vary. These include Episcopalians, Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians, Baptists, Pentecostals, and numerous other groups. In addition to some other churches, or in addition, some churches consider themselves within the Protestant stream, but do not affiliate with any specific denominations, such as Bible churches or community churches. And let me say one thing. It's commonly thought that Roman Catholicism is monolithic. Well, actually, it's not. They don't really have denominations, but their denominations are really called called orders. <laughs> so you have Jesuits and you have Franciscans and Dominicans, but it doesn't really come out at the church level, but they, they do have different beliefs among them. In any event, the, the basic point still stands. Those are the three main categories. You've got Eastern Orthodox, you've got Roman Catholicism, and then you've got Protestantism. And among Protestantism, there are more definitive groups. They break up into Anglicans and Baptists and Presbyterians and Lutherans and Methodists, these kind of folks, Okay. Now, why have they broken up this way? Well, the, the first point I mentioned, I'm back to the article now. So why are there so many different denominations and types of churches? There are several reasons. For starters, let's not forget that denominations are made up of, of churches and churches are made up of people. And sometimes people just don't get along. After all, just because people are Christians doesn't mean they'll always agree. Moreover, Christians still struggle with pride, selfishness, and stubbornness. And this means they sometimes respond to relational conflict poorly. This has often led to debates and divisions within churches and denominations, which in turn leads to the creation of new churches and denominations. It's an unfortunate situation, but a reality given human nature. Maybe this is why Jesus focused so much on unconditional love and forgiveness as an expression of the kind of people he wants us to be. So why are there so many denominations? Pride is one thing, friends. We'll get to more after the break. You're listening to Cross Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in two minutes. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith, and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this, we don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. Zero 
100% go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examine, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. So why are there so many different denominations? That's one of the topics we're talking about today. And I just read a section from an article put out by Starting Point, which is a ministry of North Point Ministries, uh, the church uh, down in Georgia, uh, led by Andy Stanley. And it's quite a good article, so I've read a section of it. I'll read some more. But before I go into this a little bit further, let me ask you guys a question. When people ask, why are there so many different denominations or different interpretations of the scripture? You might ask this question. Why are there so many different interpretations of scientific questions, such as, say, the origin of new life forms? I mean, you've got Darwinian evolution, neo-Darwinian evolution, you know, uh, molecules to man without intelligent intervention. That's gradualism. You've also got punctuated equilibria, which was uh, coined by Stephen Jay Gould, a former Harvard professor who has since passed on. And he said, well, the fossil record doesn't look like... um, doesn't look like gradualism. It looks like there's been great leaps between the different types of, uh, of life forms. So he posited that there were great leaps that left no fossil, no fossil remains. And he called that punctuated equilibria. The mechanism that he had to do this, well, he didn't really, I don't think, explained it quite well or had a mechanism. But he was just saying, look, the fossil record does not show gradualism. So I'm going to say that we got here through some sort of evolutionary process, these great leaps from one type to another, and he called it punctuated equilibria. Then, of course, you have intelligent design. People are saying, well, no, this shows signs of design. Not only are natural laws inadequate to create new life forms, but we have positive evidence that an intelligence must be involved. For example, in the genetic code, codes don't come from natural laws. Codes come from coders. Programs don't come from natural laws. Programs come from programmers. And inside every cell is a program thousands, millions, or billions of letters long. And programs don't evolve. They have to be all there at once in order for there to be any function at all. And then you've also got theistic evolutionists, which actually is a form of intelligent design. You've got at least four major viewpoints and there's probably a lot of sub-viewpoints we don't even know about. In fact, I know there are sub-viewpoints because back in uh, November of 2016, the Royal Society, the scientific affiliation over there and uh, association over there in the UK, very prestigious, started by Isaac Newton. Uh, they actually had a conference in November of 2016, and it was they, they brought together people to talk about trying to come up with a new theory of evolution because the current one just doesn't work molecules to man without intelligent intervention natural selection operating blindly on on dna will not give you new body plans they know that so they're trying to come up with another naturalistic explanation now they failed to do so in this conference but they're probably working on something and there may be all sorts of of little esoteric or provincial kind of of uh, theories that people have as to how new life forms got here. Why are there so many different interpretations of the natural world? Why? If you're going to ask why are there so many different interpretations of the Bible, 
You can ask, why are there so many different interpretations of the natural world? Well, it might be partially because of pride. It might be partially because people have their own theories and they want to hang on to those theories. It could be an honest difference of opinion. It could be that there's conflicting evidence out. There could be a number of reasons. But for people to expect that Christians would be uniform about absolutely everything, when people aren't uniform about virtually anything else, seems to be too big of an ask. In other words, where our expectations are too high or too unrealistic. So you've got pride. You've also got a reason. We're back now to the question, why are there so many different denominations? And you're listening to Frank Turek on Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network, our website, crossexamined.org. Um, a second reason that this article put out by Starting Point uh, says is there's often disputes about secondary issues, not the primary issues. Christians who believe in the Bible, who think the Bible's true, they all agree on the essentials. That there is a God, you are not him, that, that uh, Christ came to pay for our sins, we're all sinners, and we need to be saved through his sacrifice. Everybody agrees on that, that he rose from the dead and he's going to come again. Everybody agrees on the essentials. They may disagree over these secondary issues. So the article goes on to say another reason so many different groups of Christians exist is differences. Oh, no. Hold on. Back up. Let me, I'm, I'm a paragraph ahead of myself. Let me go back. Another reason Christians are sometimes divided is legitimate disagreements about secondary areas of belief or practice. What does baptism mean and who should get baptized? How should local churches be structured? Who should fill leadership roles? How often should communion be practiced? How should certain passages of the Bible be interpreted? These are good questions. and The answers aren't always clear in the Bible. Perhaps this is the reason the Bible exhorts us to exercise wisdom and humility when it comes to secondary issues where genuine differences exist. And all you need to read is Romans chapter 14 and 15. Because basically the, and this is me talking, not the article anymore. Basically the theme of Romans 14 into 15 is don't major in the minors. Don't major in the minors. If there's a disputable matter, it's not an essential matter. Don't impose your view on somebody else and don't allow them to impose their view on you. We can have differences on disputable matters. So that's another reason that there may be different denominations. The denominations agree a lot more on the essential issues than they disagree on the secondary issues. In fact, maybe put it another way, Denominations agree on much more than they disagree on. And there's another reason there may be different denominations. And for this reason, I think in this sense, denominations are good. And here's the reason. A third reason that so many different groups of Christians exist is differences in personality, passions, and talents. Some people are more inclined to worship God through the exercise of their minds. They therefore focus on analytical thinking and biblical knowledge. Others are more artistically or creatively wired. And they express their faith in a quite different way. Still others are more engaged in the relationship with God when they serve others. They find their greatest fulfillment when they can work with their hands or actively serve people with special needs in their communities. While all of these things are important, it's no surprise that different churches and whole denominations would emerge in light of these unique personalities of their adherence. And then the last paragraph talks about also the idea that there are different cultures, you know, a, a 
a church in in um, Topeka, Kansas, will probably look different than a church in a war-torn area of Iraq or in an impoverished area of Africa. And that's one of the amazing things about Christianity. Christianity adapts to the culture. Not doctrine, but expressions in worship. Christianity can adapt. Unlike many other worldviews, Christianity melds right into the culture in the sense that the doctrines don't change, but how the doctrines are expressed can change. So there are many different reasons that there are different denominations. And in some sense, that's a good thing. Because if, if I'm more wired to worship through liturgy and you're more wired to worship through a more free-flowing kind of service, then we both have a place to go to worship the same God. And again, it's the secondary things that the denominations are divided over. The ones that believe the Bible. There are some denominations that have gone so far left, so far liberal, they don't even believe the Bible. They're nothing, as Dr. Geisler would say, but hymn-singing rotary clubs. They don't, they, they don't believe in any of the essentials of the faith. Well, they're not really Christian anyway. They've, they've abandoned the faith. But those that believe the Bible is true, different denominations, they disagree on the minor issues and they agree on the major issues. And that's the important thing. Now, there are certain groups out there that are considered cults. I don't mean cults just in the sociological sense, but cults in the doctrinal sense. A cult is a group that disagrees with one or more major fundamentals or essentials of the Christian faith. Like, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses, they disagree. They don't think Jesus was God. Well, that's an essential of the Christian faith. And yet Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that. Mormons, Mormons are polytheists. They don't even believe there's one God. Doesn't mean they're not nice people. They are. But they don't believe in one God, and they don't believe the same Jesus of the Bible that Christians believe. And I had one guy write me and say, oh, come on, you know, aren't they just separated brethren, or aren't they just Christians? No, they're not Christians. They may call themselves Christians. In fact, if you have a problem with Christians saying Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons are not Christians, then you really have a problem with the Apostle Paul. Why? Because if you go to the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, Paul is basically talking about people who are trying to have uh, Christianity overcome by a doctrine of works. And that's what Jehovah's Witnesses do. That's what Mormons do. In addition to their other uh, inaccuracies with regard to theology, they're, they're saying that you, you've got to be saved by works. Well, that's the whole theme of the book of, of uh, Galatians. That's why Paul's writing to the Galatians. He says, who bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? In fact, he goes on to say, if anybody preaches you a gospel other than the gospel I preached you, let him be accursed. That's how strong Paul talks about that. Well, the gospel of so-called Mormonism or the so-called gospel of Mormonism and the so-called gospel of Jehovah's Witnesses is not the true gospel. And Paul would say, that person... If he comes to you with that gospel, let him be accursed. Now, that's very strong language. That's not my language. That's the Apostle Paul's language, okay? So don't write me saying that, oh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are, are Christians. No, they're not. Not, not, in, not according to the Apostle Paul, they're not. It's not me saying that. Now, of course, Paul didn't know about Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons when he wrote that. 
But the same kind of thing that he wrote against is what Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons do. They deny one one or more of the essentials of the faith, and then they say that in order to get saved, you gotta you gotta engage in works. No, that's not true Christianity. It's a different gospel. So there are many reasons there are different denominations, and we shouldn't expect people to agree on everything. We don't expect that in virtually any other area of life. Why should we expect it when it comes to Christianity? We're unified on the big issues. We disagree over some of the smaller issues. Now, we can argue over what's a big issue and what's a small issue. That's a legitimate question. But on the essentials, just about every Christian worldview that believes, Christian denomination that believes in the Bible, um, believes in the essentials of the faith. Arguably, anyway. All right, we'll come back with some other questions, like maybe a question on can you be certain that Christianity is true? What about doubts? We'll talk about that after the break. You're listening to Cross Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Uh, check out our website, crossexamined.org, crossexamined with a D on the end of it.org. And I'm back in just two minutes. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type Cross-Examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. You know, one more thought, thought on denominations. In the, uh, the back of the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, we have a little dialogue between a Christian and an atheist. And the atheist says, I'm jumping in right in this dialogue here. The atheist says, okay, so maybe there are objective interpretations. But if there are, then why are there so many denominations? And the Christian answers this way. For the same reason, there are a lot of non-Christians. It's not because the truth is not perceived. It's because the truth is not received. In other words, we believe our own traditions and desires over the word of God. Jesus spoke forcefully, uh, spoke forcefully against doing this, Matthew 15, 23. That's a pithy way of, a short way of saying, yeah, a lot of denominational differences are because we don't receive the truth. We may perceive it, we don't receive it, and we have traditions and desires which we think are more important than the word of God, or maybe we don't even recognize that we have traditions and desires that contradict the word of God. But then again, as I mentioned, there are good reasons to have different denominations. Sometimes it has to do with style of worship, and that's, that's a good thing, because different people who are wired differently can worship in different ways. All right, let me go on to a, another question, question about certainty. I got a question. Uh, you know, can we be certain? Uh, how 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 can we know that Christianity is true? Uh, in fact, let me, this question comes from Ricky. He says, hey, Frank, let me start off by saying how thankful I am for your ministry and your obedience to God for helping and equipping others such as myself. I've studied many aspects of apologetics, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts as you're, as you primarily teach on an evidential level. Yeah, we're trying to give evidence. That's true, Ricky. Is it possible for us as Christians to have certainty? I'm asking this from a epistemic standpoint, not just a psychological one. Thank you again for all you and your team do. Ricky, oh, Ricky, good question. Well, it depends on what you mean by certainty. I think there are very few things you can know for certain. I think that's one of them. 
<laughs> there are very few things you can know for certain. I mean, I think you can know for certain you exist because you have to exist to say it. Now, is it possible that we are all a experiment uh, by a mad scientist somewhere and we're in the matrix? Yeah, that's possible, but it's not reasonable. So I choose not to believe it. Okay. <laughs> uh, and there's no evidence. There's no way of, of knowing that. But from a, a common sense perspective, can you have certainty? Well, I don't think certainty is required to believe in God. We tend to believe things based on probability, based on evidence. And that's the way I argue for Christianity. Uh, we do start with self-evident truths like the law of non-contradiction, the law of the excluded middle, the law of identity, these basic laws of logic. And then we use our sense data and we apply those laws of logic to discover truths about the real world, and then we can draw some conclusions. Now, for me, when I look at, say, the laws of logic, our ability to reason, the objective laws of morality, which seem intuitive, built right into the nature of the universe, the laws of mathematics, these kind of things, for me, it seems, and I'm as certain as I can be about this, that there has to be some immaterial source of this that's reasonable, that's intelligent. That grounds reality. So someone like God must exist. Now, I don't know that that's the Christian God just by those arguments, but it could be the Christian God. No argument gets you all the way to Christianity. You have to put these arguments together, put these observations together, put these effects that we recognize about reality together and build the case as to who the ultimate ground of reality is. And when I look at reason, mathematics, the laws of logic, our ability to, to ascertain truths about the real world and draw conclusions about it, that this is a rational world, I sense that ultimate reality is rational. And, and ultimate reality is a mind. Now, who is this mind? You've got to go further and look into the claims and the events surrounding Jesus' life and see if he was who he said he was, because if he was God, then whatever he teaches is true. And Jesus taught... The Old Testament is the word of God. He promised the New Testament. So that's how we get to the Christian God. We start with arguments for the existence of a theistic God, and then we move on to evidence that Jesus actually is God in the flesh. He added humanity to his deity. His, the two natures did not overlap, but he had two natures in one person. And whatever he teaches is true. As I've said before, I just have a personal policy. If somebody rises from the dead, I just believe whatever they say. So I don't think you can be absolutely certain, but I think you can be certain beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, there is something called the witness of the Holy Spirit. And that witness of the Holy Spirit, I think, gives us assurance that what we believe is true. But that's not an assurance I can share with anybody else. That's more of a it, it comes from an objective source, God, but I can't share that with you because it's, it's inside of me. It's not outside of me. It's not like I can say, well, look, I've got this cup here. You can see this cup and I can see this cup. Let's both uh, believe in the cup, right? Um, I can say I have the, 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 whole, the witness of the Holy Spirit that tells me, that confirms that I am his child and, and I'm a, a Christian and, and Christianity is true, but that's not something I can share with you that you can witness yourself. You can only witness it in you. In other words, you can't you can't get in my psyche to know that it's true in my mind. It's subjective. It comes from an objective source, but it's in me, the subject. But I don't know why the question is all that critical, because we don't demand certainty in virtually any other area of life. 
you know, I've, I fly a lot. I, I got on the plane this morning. And uh, when I got back to Charlotte, uh, well, actually, before I got on the plane, I trusted that we would get here. I didn't have absolute certainty we would get here. But I had enough evidence to know that American Airlines has trained people and trained mechanics and the air system in the country is secure and they know how they know what they're doing. And, you know, the, the mechanics put fuel on the plane. They fixed anything that was wrong. The pilots know how to fly. I didn't have absolute certainty, but I'm here. It was enough to make a life and death choice. You do the same thing when you get in your car. You don't know if you're going to get there. You don't know if somebody's going to run a red light and and send you to the hospital or, God forbid, the morgue. You don't know that. But you live life as if you can trust that it's not going to happen, at least beyond a reasonable doubt. And by the way, doubts are actually true beliefs in reverse. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take atheists, for example. An atheist doubts that God exists. But what doesn't an atheist doubt? If he says God doesn't exist, well, most, most atheists don't doubt materialism. In other words, they have a positive belief that materialism is true. They think that's really true. And when they doubt God, they're saying, well, I positively believe that maybe the universe is eternal, or I positively believe, believe that the universe came into existence from nothing and by nothing, or I positive, positively believe that there are multiple universes out there, and all the universes have always existed, and ours just happens to be designed, or I positively believe that there is no objective morality, or there is an objective morality, I just don't have a source for it. These are all positive beliefs. Atheists are always trying to say, and Michael Shermer tried to say this again in the debate I had a couple of weeks ago with him. Last show, we talked about the debate. You can watch the debate on our website for free at uh, our YouTube channel as well. Uh, it's, on our, it's on our Facebook page, but it's also on our YouTube channel. But, you know, he tried to say, I just lack a belief in God. Well, if you lack a belief in God, that implies you have positive beliefs about how reality can exist without God. Your ultimate reality are molecules. Look, at the end of the day, there's only two, there's only two possible worldviews. Either matter came from mind or mind came from matter. That's it. You can boil it all down to that. Ultimate reality is matter or ultimate reality is mind. Which is it? <laughs> well, if you're going to make a case, it's matter. You're actually using mind to do so. So why should you think your mind is reliable if it came from dead, unintelligent, unguided matter? No, ultimate reality is mind, and matter came from it. So, the point is, is that if you're having doubts about Christianity, it means that you probably think that some alternative explanation is true. Well, what is that, and what evidence do you have for that? What evidence do you have for the creation of the universe, the creation of life, the creation of new life forms? Objective moral obligations, consciousness, the laws of logic, our ability to reason. What do you think happened to Jesus? How could Christianity come out of Judaism in Jerusalem when everybody knew where his tomb was, if, the, if he was still in the tomb? How could, this have, how could we have gotten here? You think it's all a big sham? You think it was all made up? You think it was all invented? You got to have a lot of faith to believe that. A lot more faith than I need. 
So if you're having doubts, Ricky, um, remember that doubts imply true beliefs in another direction. It was Philip Johnson who said, he who says he's a skeptic in one set of beliefs is a true believer in another set of beliefs. Well, what are those true beliefs or what are you truly believing in if you doubt Christianity? And what evidence do you have for that position? And by the way, as I mentioned in the presentation the past two days or earlier this week in Missouri, that your psychological state does not change the facts. I mean, if you doubt God exists, that doesn't mean he suddenly popped out of existence. Conversely, if you believe God exists and he really doesn't, that doesn't pop him into existence either. So if you're wrestling with doubts, you really ought to wrestle with the evidence rather than your doubts, because the doubts or the beliefs don't determine what what really is. I mean, when people come to me and they say, oh, I lost my faith, I don't I don't mean to be insensitive, but I almost want to say so. So you lost your faith. Does that mean now God has gone out of existence and Jesus never did rise from the dead because you, you doubt it? How, how, how do you come up with that? There are people smarter than me and smarter than you that believe it's true. Of course, there are people smarter than me and smarter than you that don't believe it's true. So it's not what other people believe or not. It's, it's what the evidence shows. And what does the evidence show? In other words, concentrate on the evidence. Don't concentrate on your psychology. All right, friends. Great being with you. This is Frank Turek from crossexamine.org. Don't forget to be at a number of events coming up. Deeper Roots, Rethink, the National Conference on Christian Apologetics here in Charlotte, and then ultimately out in Colorado Springs toward the end of October. Check our website for more, and I'll see you here next week. God bless. We work hard to create great content and deliver truth and valuable insights to all of our Cross-Examine podcast listeners. If you agree, take 30 seconds out of your busy schedule to leave us a five-star rating so more people like you can find us. Just look for the Cross-Examined official podcast, three words on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. We are truly grateful for your support. 